let's find our way to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to start in chapter 1. Um, I'm not going to pay attention much to the, the structure of this book uh, as we go through it for several weeks, but it is important to take note of the reality that um, those main divisions do at least help the guideposts because it is such a long book. Um, it's helpful to realize it starts off of this idea that people were choosing what their favorite Bible teacher was and then criticizing everyone who didn't remind them of them. That's not how the gospel works. Um, it's all about Christ. It is not about uh, his servants. Uh, the same thing with regards to sex, food, uh, the gathering, and the corporate worship. Uh, all of these things have to do with the ramifications of the of the gospel inside the the life of the gathered assembly. Uh, even some of these places that we um, we typically talk about on the individual level, like uh, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, um, that is not talking primarily about just your body. That is talking about the church uh, as a whole. Both are true, but it is a plural you there. Y'all's body is the present, is the, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things that would really help if English had a, uh, a second-person plural. But unfortunately, English has left that behind, except for in the South um, or uh, in the Midwest. Use guys uh, would probably be a, an acceptable... What's that? Y'all. Y'all. Y'all and use guys. Yep. Um, so in all of these situations, and I really like the middle one there about food and how do you... How do you assess things that we know are reality without flaunting them in front of other people? It really demonstrates um, our attitude towards other people if we uh, take something that we believe we have liberty in and then just flaunt it in front of them when we know they don't. If somebody, and the the example here was given of of food offered to idols, which was a massive issue in Corinth uh, because it was the center of so um, so many different cultures that people made up factions based on this. Are you a food offered to idol eater or are you not? And people were trying to go, well, which side does it fall on? Well, Paul says, well, we know idols aren't anything. And we know that eating meat does not actually worship this, uh, this false god. And yet, there are those who assume that. And if you know that going in and you flaunt it in front of them, they're going to associate you with that false god. Isn't there something more important than just food going on? Uh, isn't there something more significant than all of these things going on? In the gathering, people had spiritual gifts. And we're going to be sitting in chapters 11 through 14 for a couple of weeks because it is the most uh, dense place in Scripture that talks about the practical workings of the Spirit. Um, all through there are all of those, those uh, spiritual gifts given to the church, gifts of this, 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 and this, and huge lists uh, how to use them, how to use them if it interferes with somebody else's spiritual gift. I mean, the, the reality is just the practical living in the first generation of the apostolic church. How did they and how should they see their spiritual giftings? Um, people would talk over one another. Some people would uh, speak in tongues and have no interpreters, which means it doesn't do anything except for boost up that person's pride. And he's like, that's the exact opposite of why you even have that gift uh, you know, it's, it's simply a remarkable section. We're going to spend some time in it. Uh, and obviously that section on the resurrection uh, read out at almost every uh, funeral uh, with very good reason uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, because it talks about the reality that if there is no resurrection from the dead, then all of our faith is in vain. We're still in our sins. Uh, and what, what, 
what good news is death. In fact, you see at the very end there, even Jesus' death would have been meaningless if there is no resurrection from the dead. Very important things to establish our hopes in. Uh, and it's a huge book with a lot of issues. And all the issues we're not going to get into, we are here to understand the Holy Spirit. And so with that, I want you to see at least the setting of the discussion for this morning starts in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Here, Paul will begin this discussion regarding how it is the gospel comes to mankind. Mankind would prefer, especially Greek society and especially in Corinth, uh, mankind would prefer that it comes through ways that uh, are on his design. If, if, if God was going to come and, and explain the gospel to us or the world to us, it should come on our terms. It should come with our philosophical rules, with our assumptions, with what we hold, and God should basically answer to us. And what, uh, what Paul here says, wow, shush, 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 stop it. There we go. Um, with all of this, then the question comes, how did the gospel actually come? How did the message of the cross come? Did it come by appealing to our rational faculties, to our philosophical arguments and the constant theological discussions going on at the day? Or did it come in a completely different way? And Paul will introduce this to us um, here in verse 18, and then we'll get up to chapter 2 where we will sit for most of the time this morning. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, here he draws two distinctive sides here. Uh, The temptation in the church always to appeal to the natural man Uh, or to the preferences of mankind, and make the message of the cross not foolishness to their ears, is always present in the church. Right? We we see it in the temptation when we we talk about the gospel uh, to people who do not believe in it, to try to say, well, let me, let me prove it to you historically. Let me prove it to you linguistically. Let me, let me establish the, the proof of it. This is very much coming back and in vogue these days uh, with the idea that we can leave behind huge sections of Scripture. We don't really want to address that. We don't want to talk about that. We just want to talk about something that we can prove historically, meaning the resurrection of Jesus. But to leave behind the Scriptures is to leave behind the entire power of everything that it comes with. The gospel cannot just be this removed message outside of its own time and space and outside of the message that God gave all around it. And so all of it must be given at all points. The word of the cross, he says, we should boldly proclaim is folly to those who are perishing. But we have come to know that the word of the cross, for us who are being saved, it is the actual power of God. A greater distinction could not be made. One is the foolishness of mankind, and to the other ear, it is the power of the one who created the world. And he says this was foretold. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. All of the plausible arguments, all of the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the age, the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning, God says, in the message of the gospel, I will intentionally destroy every bit of it. Because if your concept of reality brings about pride, be sure you are not on the same side as God. 
If your concept of reality makes you proud, you are not on the same side as God. And what does he say here? I will intentionally deliver the message in a manner that destroys that. What does he say, verse 20? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, the one who writes down the true things of this world? Where is the debater of this age, the one who defeats wrong ideas and instead puts forth his own? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not, through God, did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That is a very, very important verse to the message of 1 Corinthians. Man has tried on his own to reach God. Man has tried in his, in his philosophy, in his, uh, in his political mind, through his force, they have tried to understand God. Did they get there? Plato had, uh, as a philosopher, many theories about the perception of reality. And he thought that the philosopher could see the light of wisdom clearer than any other person. And still, Plato completely missed God. Now, he held to a singular God. There must be nothing else makes sense. Even on the basis, even him in a polytheistic culture said, there's no way it could just be multiple gods. There's got to be one in control of it all. It's got to be something, but stop short. That's it. All you can know is that God is powerful. It's the opening to the book of Romans. Through the things that God has made, he's only allowed humanity to see two massive things. God's power and his eternal nature. That's it. We, we can't perceive the gospel by looking at the trees. You cannot perceive the promises of the Son of Man or of Messiah by studying the rocks. You won't do that. What will happen is you will develop a worldview out of all of these things that have been made. And if it doesn't end at God, it's just going to prove to be foolishness. And that's the best that mankind can come up with. Here's what he says here. Since, verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, through its attempts at discerning who God is, God says, you know what? How I'm going to send my message is not going to be through the wise. It's going to be through the morons. I mean, literally what what he says here. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, we are not appealing to the wise. We are not appealing to the strong. We are appealing to the fools. Because the message of the cross is not legitimized by who agrees with it. The message of the cross is legitimized by the fact that it has its origin in God. He even says this to the church here. He says, look, not, not many wise but only a lot of fools has God saved for the kingdom. He says, you want proof of that? Look around at church. We're not, we're not chieftains. We're not kings. We're not the philosophers and the wise that sit in the agora, the marketplace, and argue for the, the tenets of reality. He says, very few of those will ever be saved. They, they don't think they have need of a savior. It's just like the Pharisees. Only those who are sick think they have any need of a savior. Or of a, of a doctor. He's like, if you think you're well, if you think your philosophy is good enough, good luck with that. God's not sitting there trying to convince you. He just states the reality of the gospel and moves on. And he says, this is the same whether you're Jewish or Greek. Verse 22. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But, and the expression is on the other side, we preach Christ crucified, something that neither of them want and both of them trip over. What does he say? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, he says, this is the remarkable thing. Neither of them are looking for this. Both of them, Jews and Greeks alike, reject Christ on the basis of his folliness, whether it is through not giving them the signs they want or not giving them the wisdom they want. And he says, but regardless of whether we're Jews or Greeks, to those whom God has called, Christ is the power of God, signs, and the wisdom of God, wisdom. In other words, they didn't go out looking for the solution this way, but they heard the message and it became to them the center of all their hope. This, Christ on a cross, something that in Corinthian culture is so eschewed that it wouldn't even be mentioned in polite company, crucifixion. And yet here we are, the cross of Christ becomes the power of all these things. It would be similar to if we lived in a culture where we still had capital punishment in a public way, like whether the, um, the, the firing squad or public hangings. Imagine it, if you will, because that's what crucifixion was. In polite society, we just won't talk about that. But then the message of the cross comes in the way that an execution method becomes the central hope of those who follow in Christ. The very thing that to the world's eyes looked like his defeat being put to death, became the center of all hope. We wear little cross necklaces, and we get so removed from that, it would be similar to somebody walking around with a noose around their neck. In the earliest days, that was the picture of it. And that's exactly what Christ meant when he said, everyone wants to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Grab a cross, grab a noose, let's go up to the gallows. That's exactly what he's saying there. And to them, to those who are looking for signs and wonders and political um, solutions, or for those who are Greeks who are looking for wisdom and philosophical arguments that were removed from themselves so that they could perceive the wonders of the universe, Jesus just comes up and says, grab a cross, let's go die. And to the Christians who were well, either Jews or Greeks, they found out that in following Christ, it is the power of God that showed up in the way that the world sees foolish. Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Verse 26 says, consider your calling, brothers. <laughs> In other words, look around. Look around at the Christians. Do you see great warriors? Do you see philosophers? Do you see the debaters of this age, those who are proud in themselves, or do you see people of all stripes, weak, strong, folly, smart, all serving the one cross of Christ for his glory and for their humility? He says, look at this. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were even of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, and here's the reason why God did this. This really lays the foundation for the whole book. So that no human being might boast, might be proud in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's a remarkable foundation for the consideration of all that comes in the book of 1 Corinthians. Because if the church, which this church in Corinth, is is defined and described most aptly by its proudness, by its pride, either in itself or in each other's people, or in their leaders, as his first set of example is, it is indication that the gospel of Christ is being eclipsed. Because the gospel does not lead to pride. The gospel leads to humility. It is something that Christ has gifted to us, the right to become humble and depend on him. Most of us tend to look in the world's eyes on humility with derision. Well, it won't make you successful. It won't bring you all of these things. And yet, Paul says, this is the remarkable thing about the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ is through humiliation, he had victory and so too we. It is not through pride. It is not through getting the right teachers. It is not through having the right actions. It is not through having the right reputation. Instead, what he says here, it is about having the right Christ. And he says, this is the same thing as when I came to you. He lived with them for 18 months at the beginning of uh, the Corinthian church's uh, start. He says, when I came to you, verse 1, chapter 2, and this is where we're going to be sitting here. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I did not come to you with all of these plausible arguments, all of these apologetics, all of these deep proofs of who Christ is, the nature of God, how the world works, of philosophy, and the nature of wisdom. Nope. Nope. He says, instead, because of where you were at culturally, he says, before I even got to town in Corinth, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except one thing. The most foolish thing to Greek ears. Jesus Christ, a Jewish Savior, and him crucified. The most abhorrent method of execution. That's all I wanted to give to you. Because think about it this way. What kind of humility would it have worked in their minds if he came and appealed to their philosophical sense? Ah, we were right all along. I knew it. We, we were right to pursue God in our own ability. No, we are only right to pursue God in what he says. I can't sit here and contemplate the divine separate from his word. To do so is to follow God after my own making. And I don't care how long someone studies theology or any of the case. If it is not in the word of God, it becomes foolishness to the ears of the Christian. You hear this when somebody goes to seminary and drinks the Kool-Aid too deep. And they get strange teachers, which, believe it or not, there are strange teachers in seminaries all over the place. Same as there are strange pastors in churches all over the place. And if they go with uncritical ears, they will come out spouting all sorts of things that everyday Christians go, 
I read my scriptures all the time, and I, that's, that doesn't comport with the reality expressed in there. The Word of God is what normalizes the life of the church, not the teachers. And so he establishes this from the very beginning. He says, look, I didn't even baptize any of you. I left that up to other leaders. I didn't want anyone saying, oh, well, I follow Paul, and then this person follows Apollos, and this person follows Peter. He was like, are you kidding me? That, that's, that's the opposite of the gospel. That's the opposite of what we preach. The last thing we would want to do is to have you defined by us. You must be defined by Christ. And this I would remind my Catholic brothers and sisters who define themselves by Peter to heed his warning. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but, and here's his first reference, in demonstration of the Spirit, capital S, and of power. In other words, when I came preaching to you, it had absolutely nothing to do with appealing to your philosophical sense. You wanted words of wisdom, I gave you foolishness. You wanted Greek pride, I gave you Jewish humility. You wanted plausible words, I gave you implausible words. You wanted God high and fully separated from humanity, I give you God in human form. You wanted hope and death, this was the hope of Greek philosophy, that upon death you would enter the, the bodiless ether of the universe. By the way, our society is going back to that, in case you're not worried, aware of that. And he says, no, I give you resurrection. Go back to the body. Something that Greeks found absolutely atrocious. And he says, I did this, verse 5, so that your faith might rest not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because here's the funny thing about the wisdom of the world. If you live long enough, you will see many of its arguments fail and other arguments replace it, claiming to be wise. It will happen over and over and over again throughout your life. If I can have anyone who's older than me uh, address the reality that culture will continue to tell you this and this and this, and it'll change its mind, and then change its mind again, and change its mind again. If, if the preaching the gospel is linked in with the arguments of this age, What's going to happen is that the message of the gospel to those who hear it will pass away the second that it's not in vogue anymore. This is why, again, all of the preaching of the gospel must be not only just rooted in scripture, it must be about the scripture. It must be focused on Christ and the world to come. Because the second it becomes about the world in which we are, it will pass away, rightly so. It means we take what is eternal about what hopes we have, that is the scriptures, the word of God that endures forever, and we turn it into the grass like us, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven. The word of God endures forever and the hopes in it. And so the message that it brings and the spirit that it brings is not something that we can just cast aside quickly because we have people that would rather hear it in a different way. God says, no, I haven't given it to you in another way. This is not a philosophical treatise. This is God declaring the reality of the world. And you say, well, what if I don't agree with it? Tough. I mean, it's kind of like saying, well, I tell you what, I, um, 
I live in the United States and there's a speed limit outside on the highway. I don't agree with that speed limit. <laughs> Tough. Well, oh, well, okay, then I'll go 85 miles an hour. Then you will find out what happens. What's going to happen? You will suffer the consequences of being wrong. How's that? That's exactly what God says. I'm not coming up to you arguing f- to you to establish that you and I come to an agreement that 65 miles an hour I'm using, you know, obviously, that it is the best way to travel. You know, he says, that's just the speed limit. End of story. He says, I'm not appealing to you because your mind is destroyed with sin. This is why he's not appealing to us. He just simply tells us. Christ is the hope of the world. You say, well, I don't know about that. Tough. That, that's the way the message is given. It is not given with plausible arguments and saying, well, okay, let's sit down and try to prove to you that Jesus is the hope of the world. God says, no. In fact, when I come, and Jesus says this about himself, I'm going to speak in parables so that you who are so proud in yourself that you don't listen to me won't repent. In fact, I will give the message in the way that only those whom I'm saving will actually hear it. Otherwise, the wrong people would repent. Jesus says that directly. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to share the world, the word with everybody. Correct. But God has already chosen. Correct. His children. Yes. So everybody won't save. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. So to us, the identity of those is unknown, and so we preach the gospel to every creature under heaven without compromise and the way that God gave it. Because the way that God gives it brings salvation to the hearers that he is saving. Yes. Yep. And, and even if we could, uh, and, and the temptation for a lot of people is to change the message so that more people supposedly follow Christ. And Jesus says that's not how this works. Uh, because of that habit in, in leaders in the church, he says there's going to be many people that f- think they're following me that don't actually follow me because they're not following my words. They're following the words of someone else. Um, so, yes, there's no biblical indication that everyone will be saved. And, in fact, that God will save everyone he intends to. Yes. <clears throat> uh, there, love is a funky word. Um, the answer is yes, but we must define love properly because there are levels of love. Um, there are. There's salvific love. We, we see it in our own lives. Um, I, I love every person on the road, so I'm not going to drive like a maniac and put their lives in danger. But I do not love them the same way I love my children. We have levels of love, and so does God with regards to these. There is general love of the world, and so he sent his son into the world. And then there is very special, unique love for those whom he's saving who are in his family. Um, those are at least two. There's actually several. But that would be the basic definition of that. Yes. To to just say God loves everybody is is to try to bring in God's trying to save everyone, which is not a biblical teaching. Um, Any more than he was trying to save the Egyptians when they were crossing the uh, Red Sea after the Israelites. God loved Israel that day. And in a very specific salvation sense, he did not love the Egyptian army who was chasing them. He killed them. So, I mean, uh, and that's, that's one of the basis of, of understanding the fact that there, is, there, is, there are facets to the reality of how God loves. Uh, it is not a simple God does rubber stamp to everything. Nope, not at all. 
Uh, same thing for humankind. There's actually wrong love. Uh, we can love the wrong thing. We love somebody only because they remind us of ourselves. That's a mistake because the whole point of love is something other than us. And this is why, uh, well, at least as far as humans are concerned, this is why love of God, who is different than us, comes first and love of neighbor comes next and love of self comes later. Um, because love is about the other. No matter what our society is doing now with love of somebody who looks and is exactly like me. Okay. First Corinthians 2. Let's continue into this. Verse 6. He says, yet. It doesn't mean that the arguments for Christ are not wise. He says, among the mature we do impart wisdom. There is a wisdom of Christ that mankind's mind can conceive of. He says, but that's not the preaching of the gospel. He says, this is, this is a later discussion. I didn't come speaking to you about how Jesus is the answer to all the philosopher's queries. But he is. He is. But that's not how I'm going to start the message of the gospel. Somebody who is not a believer, I'm not going to say, hey, you know that philosophical question you're looking to solve? Jesus has all the answers. No, I'm just going to tell him, Jesus Christ crucified is your only hope of life eternal. End of story. And unless they will hear that, they do not deserve the wisdom of Christ. And that's just why he says, among the mature, those who have been Christians already, we then do impart wisdom. Perfectly fine. Perfectly fine to delve into the deeper things of Christ. Because then it will be about Christ, your pursuits, not about you and what you want out of Christ. All of this is to protect humility. I think it's just a remarkable gift how Paul talks about this because he uses their own example. He says, although the wisdom from Christ, he says in verse 6, is not a wisdom of this age or even of the rulers of this age. It's going to look very different than what you aimed at in the beginning, but it's going to fulfill everything. He says, why is it not of the wisdom of this age? Why is it not of the rulers of this age? He says, because they are doomed to die. All of their wisdom will end as soon as they stop pulling breath. Where is Plato's wisdom today? His breath is gone. Socrates, his breath is gone. Socrates didn't even write a book. Plato wrote about him. Plato wrote his own books. But here's the thing. As long as human history continues to go on, someday the last word that Plato ever wrote will be read for the last time and he too will pass into the ether of history. There's only one work and one set of words that lives on to eternity. And this is exactly what he's arguing. He says it's not the wisdom that we, um, that we sought as humans in this world. It's not the wisdom of the rulers of this age. All of that passes away. It's all temporal. Verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. By the way, that is a deific title straight up. But as it is written, uh, a verse that people take out of context to refer to heaven. It doesn't refer to heaven. It refers to the salvation of God. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. He is talking about the reality of living inside the wisdom of God. Answering questions we didn't even know to ask. Giving us satisfaction to philosophical queries we did not know could ever be solved. 
These things, he says, God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And there he gives what is the goal of philosophical inquiry in Greek society. For the Corinthians, this would be the chief answer, the depths of God. We want to be able to understand exactly who God is, what he's about, what he's doing, and how we can get there. And he says, there's only one who's able to do that. It is the Spirit of God. He says, this is why I came to you not with plausible arguments, because you would just become proud. He says, instead, I came with a demonstration of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, who searches all things, even the very depths of God. By the way, searching all things includes the heart of those being preached to. He knows that if we appeal to your pride to bring you to Christ, you will never come to Christ. You will only be satisfied in your pride, saying, has Jesus done enough to convince me? And Jesus is sitting there saying, the gospel is not a suggestion for you to weigh, it's a command. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's always been a command. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That is not a suggestion for a healthy life. That is a command from God who created the world. Jesus' teaching is wrapped up in a single phrase in Mark 1.15, where he says, Repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right here in our midst. How is it that we can think about these things rightly? How is it that we can achieve unto that? Paul says, only through the message that the Spirit brings. Only through the scriptures in our current day. Only through the message of the apostles in their current day. Remember, as we're reading scripture, scripture is being written during that time period. Here, scripture has been written. And so what do we know? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by what? The plausible arguments of mankind solving all their problems in Christ? No, hearing comes by... Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. The last thing I hope you want when you hear a sermon is for someone to give them give you their theories about how to do a good life. You should want to hear from Christ. You should want to hear from God and his spirit. What is it he has said? And not 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 set up in a way that you would naturally like it, but set up in the way that God spoke it so that it hits you exactly how God designs it to do so. He says this type of idea. He says, how is it that we would know these, uh, these directions? Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Now, these, these capitalizations are very important. In one, he refers to the Holy Spirit. In the other, he refers to our spirit, our own uh, inner thinking and, and conception of the world. Um, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of Him who, uh, of, uh, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things that are freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but only taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths only to those who are spiritual. It's important. 
If someone plainly and fully with full knowledge rejects the message of the gospel, sharing with them the deeper wisdom of Christ is not helpful. If someone hears the gospel and says, I want nothing to do with that person who requires me to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him to Golgotha, say, then you don't deserve to know the deeper philosophical realities that he solves. And I'm not going to appeal to your preference for good, plausible arguments if you're not going to give deference to his command to repent and believe in the gospel. You don't deserve it. And Paul says right here, he says, the Spirit does the exact same thing that we did when we preached this. The Spirit does not impart spiritual things to those who are natural. Nope. Only interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Why does he do this? Verse 14, the natural person does not, cannot, will not, all of it is included in this, receive or accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Humility is foolishness to Greeks. It is to Americans as well. We are a society founded on Greek principles, by extension. And so the idea, I mean, think about it, how we think about the world. How are you successful in business? How are you successful in marketing or whatnot? Is it by being humble and meek? No. By being boorish, by being in someone's face, and by being and speaking only proudly about the thing you made. It's something that our culture holds a great deal of force in. But when we come to church, are we supposed to bring that kind of thing and, and attach it to the gospel and say, ah, you've never seen a better church than the church we have and turn us into a brand of this world. You've never seen a more uh, adept speaker. We're not trying to sell the church. And this is what Paul says here. Is this is not a message of the world. That's folly to the world to preach the way we preach. The way we preach is to say, you know what you're looking for? We're not going to give it. We're going to get you what you need. You know all that stuff that you want? Nope. We don't impart things about the natural person, uh, with, or we don't impart the spiritual things to the natural person. He says, why? Because they don't accept them. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them. And he is not able, lacks ability, lacks perception, lacks every level of this, to understand them because he is spiritually discerned. That's a very nice way of saying he is spiritually dumb. And so we're not going to give him the spiritual smarts. Is that pride? No. It's a protection of the message. Because if we make it about appealing to the low questions of the high philosophers, then we will lower the gospel to the level of a human argument. It's not a human argument. Why is the Spirit involved in all of this? That's the big question. And it comes back to something, um, Eleanor, that you had asked as well. What? If, if the natural person does not accept the spiritual things of the Lord, how are there any saved people? How are there any spiritual people at all? Where did Paul come from? Where did all these spiritual gifts come from for these people in Corinth? He says, you didn't come. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of the Lord. How is it anyone became saved? Say it louder. God saved them. Not through plausible arguments. 
Not through appealing to their moral code, not through appealing to their philosophical questions. No, God saved them. You say, well, how did he do that and on what level? Well, I can tell you this. He did it through the Holy Spirit and he did it through his word, which the Spirit gave utterance. And he did it through his apostles, which Christ gave. And as Christ has expressed, I have sheep that are not of this fold, he says to the Jewish believers at the time, and I will bring them into this fold because I'm the good shepherd, and there will be one flock, Jews and Greeks, one flock and one shepherd. And I'm not going to do it for them on the same level I didn't do it for the Jews. The Jews wanted a political messiah. He said, no. But when I'm in the presence of those whom I'm given authority, I will actually submit to their authority and let them kill me. The same attitude that the martyrs of the first generations of the church had. We have the ability to run away, but we will see martyrdom as a gift. And we'll take it happily. Many of them singing hymns, it was reported, while they were being destroyed by lions. Why? What what causes a person to do that? They've come to know wisdom far beyond the questions of the philosophers. Socrates may have been able to die well in drinking the hemlock that the rulers in Athens gave him. That's how he died. Because he appealed to the authority of the government and willingly committed suicide on their behalf. But Christ submitted himself to the authority that he gave to the rulers so that he could save his people. Just as John the Baptist had said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How's he going to do it? He's going to do it exactly backwards. If we were designing a Messiah, what would we do? We would go, huh, he's going to destroy our enemies, those sinners. He's going to take them out. He's going to kill them all and everything will be well. Problem is, with that little plan, is, as Jesus pointed out, we are all of us sinners. And unless we start there with that humility, we will never get at the place where we are actually designing and looking forward to a Messiah who, in ridding the world of sin, must include us in that transaction too. How is he going to rid the world of sin? Two ways. And it's the message of the entirety of the scriptures. Judgment or salvation? And this is, this is the answer to the question. Is he trying to save everybody? No, he is bringing glory to himself and his creation. The perfect and awesome justice of God and the perfect and awesome redemption of God. Both are on full display. Why? Because the world is about displaying the handiwork of God. And both are the unapologetic handiwork of God. He responds in two ways to sin. One is in judgment. The other is in redemption. The difference comes down to what he intends. The Spirit of God comes to a natural person and gifts them faith. It is only through the preaching of the Word of God that such faith comes. That is said explicitly in the book of Romans. Faith only comes by hearing, and that hearing must be rooted in the Word of God. Because that is how God makes faith. He does not make faith in the philosopher by saying, oh, you've got this question about the prime mover, which was a huge Aristotelian argument, who was the first person to make the first move. 
We're not going to appeal to that because you're already putting yourself above God by asking the question. You don't get to ask God that question. It doesn't work that way. It just leads to pride. And so the spiritual aspect of this is to say, we will only preach Christ and him crucified. That's exactly what Paul says. When I came to town, I refused to answer your questions. I refused to preach with plausible words. In fact, he says, I was stammering among you. I gave you only the message of Christ and him crucified. End of story. And look what it did. Because it's not about the plausible words. It's not about the wisdom of this world. It's not about answering your questions. At the end of the day, it is about proclaiming Christ and him crucified. End of story. Because that message of God becoming one of us demonstrates that the God who made us does for us before he demands of us. Think about that. God has never told us to do something that he himself has not done. Let's think about the chief commands in Micah chapter 6. To love justice, excuse me, to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God does every single one of those to his people. He loves mercy He seeks justice. He doesn't allow injustice to reign forever. He deals with it. And he walks humbly with us. And if we don't think he's walking humbly with us, when we read the stories of the tabernacle, we go, look at this overwhelming fire tornado on top of the tabernacle. That's just power and immensity. No, no, no. That is humility for God to come and dwell on the earth that compared to him is the size of a grain of sand. This is the God who spun the universe. This is the God who made all things. For him to even live, as Solomon said, in a house made with hands is such a low thing because the heavens are his throne and the earth is nothing but a footstool. So yes, he walks humbly with us. He never tells us to do something that he himself does not do with regards to these things. God says to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What do we learn about God in that commandment? But that he loves the Son and the Spirit in the exact same way. That the Son loves the Father and the Spirit in the exact same way. That the Spirit loves the Father and the Son in the exact same way. Inside the Trinity is an eternal love that will never pass away. What do we learn in the second commandment? To love something other. To love your neighbor as yourself. What do we learn? God loved us. His neighbor. To only seek after life, he gave us in the first commandment, the first chronological one. Don't eat from any other tree, only eat from the tree of life. Why? Because God is life. Christ said the same thing. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father except through me. Why? Because, not because it's just the path. No, because we're one. The same God has always been the same case. The same with the Spirit. How is it that faith comes? That God must bring life to you, must raise you from the dead, must gift you faith. In fact, even repentance is described as a gift in the, in the epistles. That the turning from sin is not something that the natural man will choose ever for himself. And the turning to Christ will never be something that he chooses for himself outside of his own, what can Christ do for me? How about this? Let's ask the other question around. What will Christ do with me if I don't repent? 
because that's the message of the gospel. Repent and believe, else you too will perish. This is how the apostles preached the gospel. This is how Paul himself preached the gospel in Athens to all of the philosophers. If you want to read that story, it's found in the book of Acts on Mars Hill. He teaches them about resurrection, and he says there's a reason why that God has said he has overlooked the times of ignorance, which he refers to the entire ancient world, and says, but in these last days he has given us the Son, Jesus. Why? Because he has set a day on which he will judge the world. There is coming a day when that will happen. And I know we live in the modern world and we go, well, we have iPhones and computers and, you know, steel buildings. So, you know, we look around and see all the things that our hands have made. And we find ourselves in a situation much like Nebuchadnezzar. Look at this that I've made. How marvelous is all of this? How grand is my kingdom and all that I can do and accomplish? If something's wrong with my body, I have designed the medical abilities to fix it. If something is wrong with my building, I have the architectural abilities to fix it. If something is wrong with the weather outside, I have created climate control so that I can fix it. I can deal with it. I don't even have to park on dirt anymore. If we take all of those things and they distance us from God rather than making us grateful to God, it reveals our hearts. Nebuchadnezzar learned, this is Daniel chapter 4, if you ever want to read it, it's great homework. He learned and he wrote to all of his peoples after seven years of humiliation. He comes back and says, at the end of it all, what I have learned, he told the whole story. He says, what I have learned is that the one who is proud, God is able to humble. New Testament writers say then, humble yourself. And at the right time, God will lift you up. The Spirit is all about this. And that's what 1 Corinthians is going to be all about. Because what they were doing is using the Spirit and the spiritual gifts that he had given to the church to puff themselves up. God gave me an ability to speak in tongues. Watch me be awesome. Well, God gave me a, a word from his scriptures. I'm going to give you it right now. But then I'm going to talk over somebody else. And they're going to talk over me. And then nobody's going to interpret. So the only thing is you get to see me be amazing. Paul says... I would rather none of you say anything than to say that nonsense. That's the basis of 1 Corinthians. I would say it's outside of the book of Revelation, the most misunderstood book in the New Testament, most misinterpreted by far, because it's all about how to be a humble Christian. And the book of Revelation is not about the future. It's about enduring to the end and being saved. We'll get there someday. All right, let's pray.